It is wonderful to see you all this morning. I pray that you're well. Uh, let me pray before we jump in to the message this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what we've been able to witness today, the baptisms that we have been part of here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity now to be together, to um, look at your word and to focus our attention on you and what it means for us to follow you in this world. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading us into all truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in John 17, next slide. By the way, have you all recovered from the game last night? Wow, I think I aged about five years during that penalty shootout. But go Matildas, amen. All right. In John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples. He said this, they are not of this world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. As you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. So Jesus prayed that uh, we would be protected, that we would be sanctified, and that we would be sent to engage the world with the help of Jesus, with the help of God and the Spirit, in order that others might believe. But also recognizing that we will be opposed in the process of doing this. We have an enemy at work in the world who is actively trying to deceive and to derail us. And then in Romans chapter 12, Paul reminds us that our devotion to Jesus is something that involves the whole of our lives. He says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Verse two, you all know this, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and to approve what God's will is. Not the will of the world, but what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, this is a recognition that there's really nothing in this world and of our own lives that is outside or should be outside of the Lordship of Jesus, amen? And so part of what it means to be a disciple is ensuring that we are not being conformed to the world, but we have our eyes open, that we're aware of what's going on around us and continually focusing on Jesus, conforming our lives to him, being uh, shaped by his way and his will, rather than the way of the world. Uh, as we looked at in our Revelation series, for those who were around during that time, we know that the world is not neutral. I don't need to tell you that. Um, if we're not being formed by discipleship to Jesus, we will be formed by discipleship to the world. There's no middle ground. We're either being formed by discipleship to Jesus, or we will be formed by discipleship to the world. So one of the crucial tasks then of the church throughout history is to try and understand and discern the times that we live in, the culture that we inhabit, so that we can be aware of how the world is trying to shape us into its image, so that we can respond with wisdom to the unique challenges and temptations that our culture presents to us, and so that we can choose to follow the will of God, choose to conform our lives and live faithfully to Jesus but also so that we can learn how to share the gospel effectively, right? So we can tell the story of Jesus in a way that will make sense to the people 
in our culture. Um, that it addresses the real challenges of the world that we actually live in now, not the world we lived in 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years ago. So carefully trying to understand our culture is vital for the sake of our discipleship on the one hand and the sake of our mission in the world on the other. We are not just followers of Jesus, we are also a sent people to help others become followers of Jesus. So to help us do this, and this is gonna be a bit of an experiment over the next couple of weeks, we are going to examine our culture uh, in an attempt to discern the times that we live in. Uh, we'll be exploring some, I say some, in big bold letters, some, not all of the underlying historical reasons for where we are at culturally right now. There's only so much I can do in one sermon. Please be gracious. And I'm trying to do a lot in this sermon, so please be gracious about that as well. Now, you may not agree with everything I'm gonna say. That's okay. I do hope that this will get us at least thinking about it. And next week, what we're gonna do is really drill down and try to understand what is going on in our culture now and how the church the people of God might be called to respond to that. So I apologize to you in advance. I am gonna nerd out on you really hard today. Some of you are gonna love it. Some of you are gonna love it a whole lot less. <laughs> it will be different from the usual. Hopefully this won't just seem like a lecture. And if it doesn't work, well, we will return to our normal programming soon. Are you ready? Lord... Jesus, have mercy on us, amen. So living in a, as a disciple in a large, progressive, post-truth, post-Christian, multicultural, spiritual but not religious, hypersexualized, and insatiably consumerist Western city is definitely not easy. And the challenges just seem to be compounding from cancel culture, does anyone remember Andrew Thorburn? to wokeism, to deepening political and racial divisions, both, you know, especially in the US, but they're here too, ongoing debates over euthanasia, reproductive rights, gender identity, preferred pronouns, sexuality, tolerance versus affirmation, freedom of speech, religious freedom, trans rights, trans women in sport, drag queen story time, artificial intelligence, transhumanism. If it feels like all of these things are linked together in some really strange way, it's because they are. I don't need to tell you how strange and how challenging all of this is. So we live in a culture now where the majority of the population don't go to church, probably don't believe in God. They might have a vague kind of spirituality, but very little knowledge of the gospel, or they're openly hostile toward it. The Christian faith has been the bedrock of Western civilization. And by the way, when I talk about culture today, I'm talking about Western culture. The story of what God is doing around the world is obviously much bigger than what we're gonna be dealing with today, but this is about Western culture. Um, so the Christian faith has been the bedrock of Western civilization for at least the last 1,500 years. Uh, as the historian Tom Holland demonstrates in his book, Dominion, has also been the main reason for the flourishing of Western law, art, literature, science, education, technology, ethics, democracy, family, the rights of women, the abolition of slavery, civil rights, indeed the very concept of human rights would be impossible without the Christian scriptures. Uh, but many now see it as a problem, as toxic, as prejudiced, as hateful, and needs to be removed from not only the public square, 
but also from business and education as well. Yes, you can believe whatever you want in your heart. You can believe whatever you want in your heart, just don't bring it into the workplace. And every HR department in the country said, amen. On the other hand, like if you don't wear the rainbow lanyard uh, or on your jersey at a sporting event, you might lose your job. Many Christians are rightly confused and distressed by all of this and feel powerless in terms of how to respond. Um, now, of course, the idea that we need to be liberated from religion, from belief in God, from the Christian faith, because it's unnecessary and oppressive, um, is nothing new, right? But it really began picking up steam since the 1950s. But the genesis of where we are at today really goes back at least 300 years to the Enlightenment. So with the rise of modern science, the primacy of human reason over religion or over faith, the advent of the Industrial Revolution and the incredible technological advances that came with it, the philosophers and scientists of that period began to ask if all this human progress made belief in God implausible, if not impossible. There was a growing confidence that we humans could really solve our own problems by innovation, technology, and scientific progress without any need for God. But it wasn't really until Darwin, he's on the slide here, published his On the Origin of the Species in 1854 that the emergent and you know, the eventual emergence of the theory of evolution, which actually, by the way, was first thought up by St. Augustine in the fourth century, so evolution's actually originally a Christian idea, I'm just gonna let that one sit there. Um, but it wasn't until the emergence of the theory of evolution, in terms of how it's framed, in terms of Darwinism, that this really blew up. Because many believed Darwin had provided us with the first real natural theory for the origins of life and the diversity of life, which made belief in a supernatural God unnecessary. Um, now, around the same time, the atheist philosopher Karl Marx published the Communist Manifesto, his, his Marx, and argued that a rejection of religion was the necessary condition for humans to discover their true nature and their true purpose, which he thought of primarily, as you'd know, in economic terms. Since there's no God, what people need to be happy is an improvement in their material conditions. His ideas have exerted enormous influence on the world, as you would know, and they still do. And here is one of his most famous passages. Let me read this, it's on the screen. The foundation of irreligious criticism is this. Man makes religion, religion does not make man. The struggle against religion is therefore the struggle against that world whose spiritual aroma is religion. Religious suffering is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people, most of you will have heard that before. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their conditions is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. The criticism of religion is therefore, in embryo, the criticism of that veil of tears of which religion is the halo. Criticism has plucked the imaginary flowers on the chain, not in order that man shall continue to bear that chain without fantasy or consolation, but so that he shall throw off the chain and pluck the living flower. 
The criticism of religion disillusions man so that he will think, act, and fashion his reality like a man who has discarded his illusions and regained his senses so that he will move around himself as his own true son. It's truly hard to underestimate the kind of shockwave that these words sent throughout the world. The logic is pretty simple. If there's no God, there's no transcendence, then there's nothing is sacred, and all there is is material reality. And although it's difficult, this is what he calls it criticism, that's become known now as critical theory, although it's difficult, once freed from the shackles of illusory religion, humans will be able to inhabit reality as it really is, uh, not through the drug haze of a religion-deluded soul, okay? And so when we see reality clearly, we, we humans, Marx thought, will recover our own agency. We can supplant God for ourselves. We can remake the world in our own image. That idea is the basis for communism. In a sense, this is the world we now live in, right? We might not be communists, but our culture is now thoroughly Marxist. There's two other guys worth mentioning here whose ideas have also radically shaped the world we now live in, and they are Sigmund Freud, he's there, uh, and Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, Freud, uh, who was also an atheist, and the founder of psychoanalysis, and many of you will probably know him much better, know his theories much better than I do, um, argued that although religion is an illusion, he believed it served an important purpose in keeping civilizations, um, well, civil, right? Freud argued in his uh, work, Civilization and Its Discontents, that civilization is the result of a trade-off. Freud believed that for human beings, it's not our material conditions, contrary to Marx, but sex, that's the basic key to happiness. The problem is that if human beings just indulge their sexual desires in whatever way they wanted, there'd be total chaos. That's what Freud believed. Civilization requires that humans therefore repress and redirect their sexual urges so that we can live together in relative harmony. Okay, now this isn't ideal. Freud didn't think this was ideal. But hence the discontents, civilization and its discontents in the title of his essay, but nevertheless, all that repressed sexual energy is then directed toward cultural projects like art and music and industry, toward building civilization. That's what he believed would happen. Now, I'm not sure if people still believe this. I think a lot of Freud's theories have now been rejected. But this has had a profound effect on our understanding of the self, of what it means to be human, um, as this kind of constant struggle between our deep animal urges, what he called our id, and the layers of kind of arbitrary civilized behavior that we lay over the top of that in order to repress those urges and play nicely with each other, right? So for Freud, culture was defined by what it forbids, what you're not allowed to do, especially in terms of sexuality. Um, and culture is maintained by the institutions and beliefs that embody and transmit those prohibitions from one generation to the next, right? We teach each other how to behave. And this is especially true, he believed, of religion, of the church. So for Freud, religion and belief in God isn't true, but it's helpful. Uh, it fulfills a, a purpose, which is it provides an illusion of transcendence. It provides uh, a, a kind of divine weight, a sacred overlay to all of the, ten, the, the commandments of God. So let's say the Ten Commandments, uh, it, you know, if, they, if we believe they're given by God, well, what Freud thought was, 
They were given uh, not by God, but as prohibitions to hold society together, not because they were true, but we believe they're given by God. It's helpful to believe they're given by God in order to make them feel sacred, to make them feel like they have divine weight and therefore must be obeyed, right? So Marx, uh, like, sorry, like Marx, Freud believed that the real fire of our being, right, the thing which truly animates life uh, and energy and passion is not found outside of ourselves, not from any God external to us, but from within ourselves, especially in regards to sexual desire. How are you all going so far? You all right? Okay. So for Freud, sex is what gives life meaning. And this is really the first time in history that sex and sexual expression had been understood this way as something essential to our happiness and fulfillment as human beings. And it's really not hard to see how this has completely shaped the world we now live in. Um, okay, so imagine you're at a party and you're with these guys, with Marx and Freud and Darwin. And you know, there's always one guy at the party who doesn't quite fit in, right? Who's a bit socially awkward, who drinks too much, who starts fights, who cries in his beer, and then just wants to set the house on fire and watch it burn. That guy was Friedrich Nietzsche. Here he is. I mean, the mustache says it all. Uh, now, you've probably heard Nietzsche's famous proclamation that God is dead and we have killed him. Uh, now, the thing is that Nietzsche didn't see the death of God as a good thing so much as a horror, as a tragedy, a necessary and inescapable tragedy and something to be feared rather than celebrated. Why was it to be feared? Because Nietzsche didn't share Marx or Freud's optimism that without God, we just get on with forging a better, happier world. No, Nietzsche saw most clearly that without God, we are opening up a great big pit, a black pit of uncertainty into which all the Christian ethics of the last 1,500 years that have shaped Western civilization will be swallowed up. Nothing will remain the same. And Nietzsche said, uh, oh, it's on the screen, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. By breaking one main concept out of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. And here's how Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, describes this. If you displace God, if you kill him, everything changes. There is no moral stability to the universe. There is nothing greater to which the individual must or even can be held accountable. There is no moral structure to human nature, no end to which human beings should shape and direct their lives. We are free of all such constraints. If there is no God, then men and women cannot be made in his image. And if men and women are not made in his image, to what moral standard must they submit themselves? To none, says Nietzsche, for the very idea of an absolute moral standard becomes meaningless in a world that is intrinsically of no significance beyond the matter from which it is made. A great moral vacuum, Nietzsche believed, would open up in the world, and since nature abhors a vacuum, he thought that there was only one thing that could possibly fill that vacuum, power, which he called the will to power. The strong and the powerful would survive and the weak and the humble would be crushed. It would lead to a total reversal of the sacred order given to us by Jesus to love our enemies, that humility is strength, that we should value goodness and love and justice and mercy. No, in this world without God, power and strength would be good and weakness and mercy would be evil. 
The sacred overlay that Freud thought was so necessary to ensure civilization would remain civil would be done away with completely. There would be nothing but power and the will to power. Here's how Nietzsche described this in one of his most famous quotes. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe the blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods? Listen to what he says, must we ourselves not become gods simply to be worthy of it? And this was Nietzsche's key idea that in a world without God, we ourselves must now become gods. We uh, must embrace the, the fear of a meaningless future with determination of the will, with the will to power. Um, we must become what he called ubermensch, supermen. Uh, all this is going down in the 19th century. And so it's one thing, right, for the educated elites to hold these views. But how did they then get transmitted to the rest of the culture, to popular culture? How did these ideas come to shape so much of the 20th and 21st century? Well, mostly it was by revolution and by war. Nietzsche was eerily prophetic in his writings, and the reason he thought that this death of God should be something to be feared was that the pursuit of power, this pursuit to become ubermensch, would initially lead to great violence. This is what he wrote. What I relate is the history of the next two centuries. I describe what is coming, what can no longer come differently, the advent of nihilism. This is meaninglessness. For some time now, our whole European culture has been moving toward a catastrophe. And if you know anything about the history of the 20th century, you know exactly what happened. He was right. Nietzsche was right. He saw what was coming. In the light of the death of God, people sought meaning elsewhere. Nature abhors a vacuum. People sought meaning elsewhere, especially in political ideologies, in empire, in nationalism, in communism, in Nazism, and a whole host of others. And the embrace of those ideas in Eastern Europe and China, in Germany and elsewhere, by conservative estimates, led directly to the deaths of over 100 million people. Thanks to the great advancements of our military technology, the first half of the 20th century was the most bloodthirsty and violent history in, period in history that the world has ever known. And let's pray to God that it's the, it's the end of that. As Joseph Stalin once said, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. So Nietzsche was right. In the new world without God, power becomes the only truth and the only justification you need. The Nazis even borrowed Nietzsche's ideas of the Ubermensch as the specific goal to which they were aiming, the creation of a master race. Let's show this on the screen, and now let's get rid of that, because we don't want to look at that for too long. The horrors of World War I and II also ended much of what was left of Christian Europe, partly because of the failure of the church to resist what was going on, and oftentimes because the church was complicit in it too because they'd lost sight of the actual gospel and traded it for a cultural gospel. And so the journalist Malcolm Muggridge observed that before World War I, the churches in Europe were mostly full, 
After the war, they were half full, and after World War II, they were maybe a quarter full, and the decline has never really been reversed. But after World War II, there emerged a new branch of atheist philosophy, which you've probably heard of, very loosely called postmodernism, and you may have heard of the characters behind it, Derrida and Lyotard and Foucault, who I had to study at university, and I have never wanted to read them again, um, which at its heart was about, what postmodernism was about was rejecting or deconstructing all claims of religious and political truth, like all stories and ideologies that seek to wield some kind of power over our lives. And you can understand why, right? Derrida was a, a, a Jewish, uh, was a Frenchman, but also Jewish. And so he and these other guys never wanted to return to the horrors of the First and Second World Wars, the horrors of the Holocaust, the horrors of the gulags that were largely fueled by religious and political ideologies, what these guys called meta-narratives, overarching stories. So they rejected Nietzsche's will to power and instead moved all ideas of truth and meaning and value into the heart of each individual. Is everyone with me so far? Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm tracking, I think. Essentially what these guys argued was that each of us should be free, each of us should be free to choose whatever we want without reference to anything outside ourselves, whether it's God or religion or government or morality or family or culture or good taste or common sense or whatever. You just do whatever you want. Uh, so we should be free to live into our own truth. That way we can protect ourselves from the oppressive political and religious meta-narratives that want to control us, that want to gain power over our lives. So we resist those by choosing instead to have the freedom to create our own meaning. Nowhere did we see this more clearly than what unfolded during the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. Uh, like in the ashes of the Second World War and the ongoing threat of the Cold War and then the bomb, uh, and this is all back in the cinemas right now, and then the Vietnam War, the baby boomers wanted to forge a different kind of world, a world where they can make love and not war, right? Where all the old taboos were rejected in favor of sexual freedom and sexual expression. Some of you were there. Put your hand up if you were there. So what was the phrase at the time? Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Actually, the sexual revolution has never really ended. It's still going on. The massive emphasis on LGBTQ rights in the last couple of decades including the now very heated debates we're having about gender identity and trans rights, are all part of that ongoing revolution. The author Ross Douthat argues that since the 60s, as part of the postmodern reaction to the horrors of the world wars, our culture has been swept up by the idea that we discover our own authentic self by looking inward and affirming what we see there. And that following Freud, expressing our sexual desires in particular, is a crucial part of being authentic and finding happiness and living into your own truth. Now, we need to understand how unique this really is. Every other culture in history, almost without exception, has taught that you can't just look inside and discover yourself. Why? Because, as Jeremiah 17:9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So inside your hearts, friends, and inside my heart, are all kinds of contradictory impulses and habits and loves and patterns and desires. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we know this. 
Everyone needs a moral grid or a set of values by which we determine which parts of your heart are to be affirmed and which parts of your heart and your desires of your heart are to be resisted and changed. That moral grid must come from somewhere. It either comes from your culture or it comes from the scriptures. Someone or some culture is shaping who you are. The idea that you can just look inside yourself discover meaning, and then express that meaning as an individual into the world, as your individual self is actually an illusion, right? But nevertheless, this view has totally gripped our culture and is now seen as common sense. Like, what I'm saying right now would seem crazy to most people. Crazy. You can't say that. But that's where we are culturally. Like, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, if you'd said the, the kinds of things our culture is now saying, people would have committed you to an institution. We are in what the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity, which is the triumph of the authentic self and the triumph of expressive individualism, which is really the, the ongoing fruit of the sexual revolution. So we've traded the scientific rationalism of Oppenheimer for the expressive individualism of Barbie. There it is. Now, I don't know. I haven't seen either of those yet. I plan to. Um, any Barbie fans in the room? Are, are you feeling the Kennedy right now? <laughs> we all know the catchphrases of the age of authenticity. Next slide. You do you, live your truth. If it feels right, it can't be wrong. Love is love, it's all good. Actually, who is the current cultural embodiment of all of this? It's Ted Lasso, of course. Right? If you've watched Ted Lasso, you'll know he's basically the secular Jesus. He's kind, he's helpful, he's friendly, he's encouraging, he's non-judgmental, and his core catchphrase is what? Believe. Believe in what? Believe in yourself or nothing or whatever. It doesn't matter. Just believe and make sure you believe it really, really hard. That's the main thing. Right? And don't get me started on the Ted Lasso Christmas special, which essentially reduced the Christmas message down to Family is whatever you want it to be, and gosh, isn't it nice to be nice? So where are we so far? First of all, what we've learned today is that if you want to change the world, you have to have some kind of epic facial hair, <laughs> which I'm working on. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And secondly, we know uh, that we now live in a culture that is thoroughly secular, which is what? What does secularism mean? Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, says this. Next slide. Secularism is an attempt to create a system for human flourishing in which the presence of God is absent. That's what secularism is, and that's the world we now live in. Uh, in this way of understanding the world, he goes on to say, everyone has a right to develop their own form of life, grounded on their own sense of what is really important or of value. People are called upon to be true to themselves and to seek their own self-fulfillment. What this consists of, each must, in the last instance, determine for, his or, for him or herself. No one else can or should try to dictate its content. This is an understanding of life that each of us has his or her or their own way of realizing our humanity and that it's important to find a life out of one's own as against surrendering to a conformity with a model imposed on us 
from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Oh, that was, sorry, next slide. There you go. So let's just ask the question, and we'll explore what all of this means in terms of what's happening around our culture right now in much more detail next week, but let's ask the question, is this vision of life compatible with the vision of life that Jesus presents us? Nearly everything about this way of understanding the world and what it means to be human is, as far as I'm concerned, so far from the vision of Jesus that it's basically irreconcilable. What did Jesus say? What will it profit you if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Or Luke 9:23, whoever wants to be my disciple must look inside themselves and discover their own truth and live into that authentically. Whoever wants to be my disciple must, come on, help me out here, guys, deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Of course, we all must decide in the end what we'll believe. No one should be able ever to force you to do that, to believe something you don't want to believe, of course. But where we're heading culturally, friends, is not good news. And as we'll look next week, um, our culture can't survive if we continue on this path. A culture simply cannot be sustained if everyone is their own little God. We also need to remember what Paul said in Colossians 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human ideas and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So in other words, we have to be on our guard, not to be taken captive by the spirit of the age. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this, that if you marry the spirit of the age, you'll soon find that it's an adulterer. All right, let's take a deep breath. Let me finish with this from John Tyson, which is a, a nice kind of hint as to where we're going to go next week. This is what he says. Secular salvation is a gospel of false promises built around worldly versions of independence and success. This is the good news of self-fulfillment, success, power, wealth, sexuality, and autonomy. Secularism offers a false vision of the future built upon an identity affirmed by the world, fleeting pleasures that don't last, and resources with the power to eliminate the problems that plague our personal lives. This gospel cannot deliver true salvation. Success is temporary at best, beauty fades, sex stops, and popular approval shifts. Secularism produces an exhausting need to keep up, or you'll be swept aside by the hungry masses. Rather than offering life, secularism kills our spirits and alienates us from God and from one another. False gospels offering false salvation radically overpromise and underdeliver. Their fruit is slavery, not freedom. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we are the recipients 
of a message that brings life, transformation, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and above all, love. I thank you, Lord, that you've loved us so much that you demonstrated to us what love really looks like. It looks like laying down your life. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that for each of us, as we wrestle with what it means to be a disciple in this current cultural moment, that we'll remember that there are just some things that are incompatible with the good news and that we need to choose. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will give each of us wisdom, wisdom and grace and truth that we might choose the will of God, not our own will, that we might surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus, not to the philosophies and the promises of this age. Because this age will pass away, but your kingdom and your words will never pass away. They are forever and ever. Amen.